we are canceling something based upon something. And we normally are basing it upon a value. Hey, you don't like homosexuality, so I'm going to cancel you. Actually, what you said reminds me of a quote that John Adams said. I'm quoting him verbatim here. He says, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So to your point about having shared morals and values. Thank you for tuning in to the Removing Barriers podcast. I'm Jay. And I'm MCG. And we're attempting to remove barriers so we can all have a clear view of the cross. This is episode 43 of the Removing Barriers podcast. And in this episode, we'll be discussing council culture and free speech. And we have Sam joining us in this episode. Sam, welcome back to the Removing Barriers podcast. And thank you for joining us once again. MCG, Jay, it's good to be with you. Nice to have you, Sam. All right, let's get into it. Cancel culture is the buzzword for today. A lot of folks have been using cancel culture to maybe get their way. So, Jay, tell me, what, in your opinion, is cancel culture? What is this buzzword we're seeing around society today? Cancel culture is a form of censorship. Basically, if you post anything on social media or if you say something, that goes against the grain and folks don't like it. They could drum up enough support and enough of the mob culture to come after you and seek to silence you by either having you deplatformed, which is having the big tech companies take away your channel or your account on the social media platform where you made that statement. It can also be where you're being doxxed or put out there for others to attack you because they don't like what you said or what you did. And so it's just basically a bullying tactic used by people who are either in power or at least in favor with the mob to silence people who have a dissenting opinion. Sam, what do you think? How would you define cancel culture? You know, I was thinking about that for a bit, and I like the definition, but I'm, after thinking about it for a while, I'm thinking that cancel culture kind of has a much richer history and heritage to it. I think it kind of goes back to political correctness, which in modern history, political correctness goes back to the Bolshevik Revolution, communism in Russia, and probably elsewhere. I believe China is very much into political correctness. The communist Chinese are, that is. But then again, the communist Chinese kind of came from Russian communism, I want to say as well. I did look up some of the history on political correctness. I see some information in the Encyclopedia Britannica, and I can read the definition real quick. It just says, political correctness, the term first appeared in Marxist-Leninist vocabulary following the Russian Revolution of 1917. At that time, it was used to describe adherence to the policies and principles of the Communist Party of the Soviet Union. So it goes on and on and on. But pretty much, yeah, just political correctness is saying what controlling body approves, I guess, pretty much. And when it comes to cancel culture, I feel like it's very similar. We see a resurgence of communism <laughs> and, right. and socialist ideology, you know, across the world. And a lot of people saying that you must speak in line with these extremist ways of thinking, if you will. So 
Yeah, to me, cancel culture, it is a form of political correctness, and it seems to be a tool used to control people, how they think and how they speak. Yeah, it seems to be something that forces people into submission. I'm glad you bring up political correctness because both of them go hand in hand in this sense that, hey, there are certain things you should say and there are certain things you shouldn't say. And if you say certain things, then we are going to come off of you what is it financially, whether you're going to lose your job or whether it is, you know, as Jay said, ducked in your family or yourself or whatever the case may be. And some of those touchy areas in society, of course, we know race is now a touchy subject. Well, has always been one. Mm-hmm. Politics, sexuality, gender and those things. Now, if you say something that the mob doesn't like towards those things, then you're going to be canceled. What does that mean? You're going to lose your job or your livelihood or something in that sense. So is cancel culture harmful? Yeah, I think it's dangerous. I think that cancel culture is, like mentioned earlier, I think it's a tool used to control people. And it seems to be antithetical to freedom of speech, right? And freedom of speech is something that our founding fathers promoted quite a bit. So I think, especially when it comes to American culture, cancel culture is dangerous because it attacks the foundation of our government and how our government operates. That is, we hold the government accountable, right? The government works for us. And it's difficult to hold anybody accountable, let alone the government, if we can't express our opinions with each other and with the government as to what we think it should or should not do. So yeah, cancel culture, dangerous. Or even be disrespectful to our leaders. Because, you know, as you were speaking, I think of North Korea, where you can't say anything about the supreme leader of North Korea, but we can say technically whatever we want to say about Joe Biden or Kamala Harris. Because, as you said, the founding fathers put that in the Constitution so that the government cannot restrict our speech. But today, it seems like they're using corporations, big tech, to help censor normal folks, or even, again, going back to political correctness. Everything that you said that I would totally agree with, perhaps I could add that it comes in many forms. I know we mentioned deplatforming, we mentioned doxing, but it also happens on an interpersonal level. Defriending, for example, is another form of cancel culture. And so it's not just at the political level, not just at the business or economic level, it's also filtered all the way down to the interpersonal level. Yeah, because the country is so politically divided in that you have to identify yourself in all these subgroups. You're going to have to identify yourself whether you're on the right or on the left, whether you're black or white, whether you're gay or straight, whether you are so many, all these, what they call them, intersectionalities. Intersections, yep. That today they just put us in groups and divide us. And that kind of helped keep us in a position where we're always rubbing against each other, rubbing against stuff, rather than looking at each other as human beings made in image of God. And God loves us no matter whether we are black or white. Of course, we as Christians believe that certain lifestyles and certain things are sin. But if the first thing you see about someone is going to be their race, then you're going to always be subdividing them into race and subdividing them into all these intersectionalities, which quite honestly, is 
unbiblical. Yeah. Perhaps we could open up the discussion a bit further to explore the issue of free speech. Because, for example, we can say that we have free speech, but you can't shout fire, fire, fire in a crowded theater, for example. So there is some speech that is limited, sedition, for example. And so is there any instance where you think perhaps cancel culture is a necessary evil? It's like sometimes someone could be saying something so destructive and so incendiary that perhaps it's better that they are censored or canceled. You know, I didn't know this. You're saying that seditious speech is not allowed? Mm, well, it actually is in theory, I guess I should say, but not practically, not in real life, if that makes any sense. I don't know. What do you think, MCG? Well, there's definitely some speech that, you know, if you say certain things that the government or someone is going to come after you. So, for instance, I don't think that saying fire in a movie theater is actually the problem. The problem is if the people act upon it. The result of it. Right. What so, would if happen, so, right. so if someone stand up in the middle of a crowd and shout fire, run, and that caused a stampede and there were actually no fire, then that person can be held liable for the actions right. that he caused. But see, I think what Sam is pointing out is the fact that sedition now is, I don't know, don't let me put words in your mouth, but sedition now is accepted. That's what defund the police is right now, isn't it? Sedition is basically, I'm reading off of the Merriam-Webster dictionary here. It's incitement of resistance to or insurrection against lawful authority. That is basically the whole defund the police, the anarchy we see in the streets right now. You know, I think even the founding fathers kind of argued about whether seditious speech was acceptable or not. Mm-hmm. I want to say that most of the founding fathers argued on the side that free speech should be allowed whether you have something good to say about the country or not, right? Or whether it's for the government or not, you should be allowed to speak. I don't know whether the founding fathers thought this or not, but it seems to me that, you know, if you told somebody to kill somebody, right, you have the freedom to say it. But then if you do that, then, and then the person gets killed, then you're involved in somebody's murder and can be prosecuted for it. Right. So there's definitely a time limit on that, though, because... That's why I was expounding on the fire in the movie theater because it's the same if I should tell someone to kill someone else. If they act immediately on my influence, yes, I'm guilty of inciting violence. But if that person waits six days and then go out and do it, then the argument is how much time do they need to sit on that and realize that's not a wise thing to do and go and do it. But at the same time, I have a friend who is actually a secret service. And he said to me that he was playing online games and the person he was playing with was actually talking and saying he's going to assassinate the president. (laughs) And while he was doing that, he was just capturing screenshots and sending them to his boss. And I'm like, at that point, you know, where do we draw the line with free speech and saying you're going to assassinate the president of the United States? There's a limit on that. Of course, I'm no lawyer, so I don't know exactly what the punishment there would be. I would imagine if the Secret Service or U.S. Marshals go after him, that they will charge him with treason or something. I don't know. Treason might be too big of a crime, but I would imagine that they will charge him with something. But to answer the question, is culture a necessary evil? I will say no. 
Well, the question, is cancel culture necessary evil? That suggests that it's intended to solve a problem, does it not? Right. And I guess my question is, what problem is cancel culture trying to solve? My thing is, cancel culture cannot solve a problem without a shared value system. The problem in the U.S. today is not necessary cancel culture, so to speak, because I believe there were some form of cancel culture all along, all throughout history. The problem is there's not a shared value system. So whose opinion and whose values are we going to cancel? So yeah. for me as a Christian, I will say let's cancel fornication. Let's cancel whatever. But we know that we cannot regulate morality. So morality cannot be a law that's instituted. It has to be a commitment of the heart. So that's why I'm saying no, it's not a necessary evil because then we're going to be forced back into the political correctness. We're going to be forced back into choosing a side because we are canceling something based upon something. And we normally are basing it upon a value. Hey, you don't like homosexuality, so I'm going to cancel you. Actually, what you said reminds me of a quote that John Adams said. I'm quoting him verbatim here. He says, our constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. So to your point about having shared morals and values. Yeah, and you can argue that the founding fathers probably had that shared values. They did. And the society has moved far away from it. Do you have anything to add onto that, Sam? No, I think that's a good quote there about it being for a moral and godly people. Yeah. MCG, you made the point, though, that cancel culture cannot or should not be a necessary evil because the problem is that we don't have shared morals. And you also said that society has moved far beyond the shared morals and values that we had at the founding of the nation. And so wouldn't that be an argument for the necessity of cancel culture? I guess the argument from the other side would be, how else are you going to bring everyone to an agreement on what is acceptable and what isn't, unless you force it? If we don't have the shared values and morals, then there has to be a standard. And right now it's anybody's game. Right now, the left, they're the ones projecting that standard and that moral. Yeah, but you go back down to the question again, whose standard or whose moral? Because as a Christian, I look to the Bible for my set of morality. I look to the Bible to say, hey, how should I live? How should I respond? But if the government and their political left, let's be clear, the political right also use council culture. Sure. This is not a left thing. This is a left and right thing. Both of them do it. Just go to Twitter. You will see people on the left calling for canceling this group and that group. Right now, I just saw that Candace Owen is calling for people to come off of Twitter and go on parlor. That's council culture. That's not just the left. That's right and left. I'm not necessarily calling out Candace Owens, but I'm just simply saying both sides of the political aisle, Jews cancel culture. So it comes down to whose morality are we going to follow? Because as the saying go, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. So you can force me into be silent and to not say anything about some kind of immoral that I might see based upon my standard of morality. But that doesn't mean I agree. You're just forcing me into submission. So I think, as I said earlier, we cannot regulate morality. I listen to politicians over and over. And I'm going to say this. That's where politics 
in the U.S. and politics in the Caribbean, at least from the island I'm from, it's kind of look a bit different because the U.S. politicians preach morality a lot. If you listen to Kamala Harris and to Donald Trump, when they talk, they say it's your moral duty to do. But whose moral duty? Where did they get the morality from? If there's no standard, then we have what we have today. Yeah, you know, where do we get our morality from? Obviously, as Christians, we get it from the Bible. But you mentioned something earlier. Just a few minutes ago, you were asking if cancel culture is a necessary evil. And then you talked about Candace Owens and the Twitter boycott. And when you brought that up, I guess that kind of changed my perspective on your question as to whether cancel culture is a necessary evil. Broadly speaking, cancel culture, I think that when you're in a fight, and I feel like there is a fight going on right in America and perhaps across the world, where one side is trying to shut up the other, you can't just sit back and take it, right? Unless you find that the attack from the other side is warranted, which I don't find that it is, then you don't sit back and take it. You have to fight back in one way or another. And so in that case, I think that, you know, fighting back with boycotts of your own can make sense. Or at least I've been leaning that way. I've used even things like the civil rights movement in America to strengthen my argument in my own mind, if you will. Because I, I think back to the days of Martin Luther King and when Rosa Parks got, well, I say Martin Luther King, Martin Luther King, Rosa Parks and all the others, when she got kicked to the back of the bus and she wasn't going to take it, so she got off the bus, you know, and then eventually there was a whole bus boycott because black people weren't being treated right, you know. So, and eventually the buses realized that, you know, the vast, I want to say a large portion of their customers, maybe even the slight majority, were black and they were losing a lot of money when the boycott occurred and they changed some of their stance, you know, they start to treat black people better, as far as I understand. I think that, you know, doing that can make sense. And it makes sense to me, not just from a political standpoint, but it makes sense to me because if I'm going to a business for their services, in this case, Twitter, and they're constantly abusing me and treating me as though I don't matter, why should I continue to give them business? Why should I help them make more money? I should probably go somewhere else, you know, until they have a change of heart anyway. I guess that would be a form of cancel culture, boycotting them. So yeah, I would say that that is a reasonable way to think. But again, I think that's in response to the original canceler, if you will. So it's like, I don't like to throw punches at people, but if somebody punches me, they better watch out because I may punch them back, you know? Yeah, definitely. Would agree with that. Do you think society is inundated with cancel culture? Yeah, I think so. I was looking through some news articles from about a year ago. Well, summer, September, and even earlier of last year. I see articles from predominantly liberal publications. I see articles from Vox. I see articles from MSNBC. Well, I guess it's just NBC now. At least their website is NBCnews.com. And a lot of these articles are talking about the dangers of cancel culture and why most Americans don't like it. So I find that very interesting. It kind of makes me wonder who's even driving it if most of us don't like it and if most of us find it to be divisive. 
Well, in terms of who's driving it, I think it is groups like Black Lives Matter and Antifa and other groups that without cancel culture, without the rallying of the mob, they don't have any power. So that's why they rally people in the street and burn down the cities, because that's the fruit of cancel culture. And without that, they don't have any power because they feel like, hey, I can't do it peacefully. And that's the difference between what Rosa Parks did and what is happening today. At least those folks, as far as I know, they did it peacefully. And I'm not saying that you can't stand up for injustice. Yes, stand up for injustice. But again, you have to ask, again, where are you taking your justice from? Because today, our divide and our morality is so far. But yes, I will say definitely stand up for injustice. You know, I'm not going to see someone punching a loved one of mine without punching them back. You say you might punch back. I'm not going to say I might. I will punch back. Yeah. So the only reason why I said might is because in every situation, I typically, even if it's very quickly, will evaluate certain things, right? So in most circumstances, yeah, I'll punch back and I'll probably knock the guy out, but <laughs> not always. Right. So. What about you, Jade? You think that we're inundated with cancel culture today? Yes. But now I'm struggling with the definition of cancel culture because you brought up, for example, the civil rights movement. Actually, Sam brought up the civil rights movement and Rosa Parks. I could be wrong here and I'm thinking aloud, so I am totally open to being corrected or having something pointed out to me. But it seems to me that it only becomes cancel culture if there is a standard of morality contrary to scripture that a governing body is requiring us to adhere to. I say that because Rosa Parks decided that she wasn't going to go to the back of the bus because the institution or the practice of racism is fundamentally biblically wrong. So she had the moral right. And cancel culture is more along the lines of, if you don't think like me, and if you don't say that men can be women and women can be men, or if you don't say that, you know, gays are just as morally upstanding as everyone else, and if you don't say that Black Lives Matter, then we're going to cancel you. In other words, if you don't accept this alternative morality, then we're going to attack you, we're going to cancel you, we're going to do all of these different things. Whereas if we are simply standing on biblical truth, that's not cancel culture, that's just righteousness, right? I'm trying to think it through, and that's why I'm wondering, right now, our culture is inundated with cancel culture because there is an alternate morality now, the leftist ideology and all of the different subheadings under that umbrella. Now it's cancel culture because they want us to accept this alternate morality. Right. I think you can call it an alternate morality, but I think it's one set of standards and morals versus another set. Right. And it comes down to this. Who is your authority? We as Christians should be taking our authority from Scripture. The Bible says that homosexuality is a sin mm -hmm. because God said so. God made us. He said he made them male and female. So therefore, we take that stand and say this. They have a different set of morality because they have a different authority. And their authority did not tell them that what they're doing is wrong. So it's 
almost like a battle between good and evil, but we're trying to determine who is good and who is bad. We are saying that we are good because we're taking it from the Bible. They say they're good because they love everybody and upset everybody. They're more inclusive, right. Right. So I think it comes down to that in terms of where are your standards rooted? Is it in scripture, in God's word, or in man's word, as Ken Ham normally would put it? And I think that's where the friction is that we have two different sets of morality. So then what Candace Owens has done in terms of calling for the boycott of Twitter, that shouldn't be considered cancel culture then. What she's doing is a moral right, because if you have a platform that favors anti-biblical values, ideologies, etc., and actively suppresses biblical stances and biblical points of view, we can make the argument that that's an evil entity or at the very least, a not so good entity. And that's not cancel culture at that point, right? You were just doing the morally upright thing. Well, I call it cancel culture just to show that both the left and the right are calling for a boycott. For instance, Goya. Mm -hmm. I think it was a few months ago, or whatever case may be, the president of Goya went to the White House and thanked President Trump for his good work. And all of a sudden politicians like AOC and stuff like that calling people to boycott Goya. Well, That's it, cancel it, culture. It's the same right. thing with Twitter following their morality and then someone is calling them to cancel Twitter. And again, I'm not saying that she's wrong necessarily to say get off of Twitter. She has a right to that, that that's free speech. Mm-hmm. But she went on Twitter to say get off of Twitter. And I'm just simply saying the right and the left use at least some form of cancel culture. But quite honestly, I don't even think cancel culture is the right term. I think it's unforgivable culture because today you could say something as a teenager and 10 years later, someone went on Twitter and see that you say something when you were 18 or 17 and you're fired and you lose a job, you lose a livelihood. It's unforgivable culture. Or you might say it when you're adult and 10 years ago and someone went and see, oh, he said this. And all of a sudden, we're going to cancel him. So it's, it's merciless. It's right, graceless. It's unforgivable it's culture gracious. and not necessarily cancel culture, so to speak. Because when do we extend grace and say, you know what? People mature, people grow up, people change. And should we be holding someone for something this is 10 years ago without knowing if they even still keep that stance? You know, just a little bit ago, we were having a discussion about what truly is cancel culture. And I wonder if part of what seems to define cancel culture, at least just looking at it, is the fact that it seems to not be logically sound, if you will. It seems like one minute you cancel this, the next minute you cancel that. Oh, we find out that one of our favorite people, because a lot of times you see cancel culture coming from the left, right? So they canceled Harvey Weinstein because he molested people and did horrible things at least allegedly actually i think he's been convicted now so i guess you can now say that he's been found guilty of that and then of course they canceled many other people they canceled republicans who got into trouble for saying misogynistic things or whatever stuff like that anyway but then when it comes to people like and i'm not trying to be political here but you look at joe biden you know there is video right tons and tons of video and tons and tons of pictures of him making unwanted, I'm not trying to be crude here, but unwanted advances towards women 
boys, girls, and men, even, you know, oh boy, I hope I don't get y'all in trouble. But anyway, <laughs> the evidence is out there on the internet like crazy. And so I just don't know why nobody takes, you know, this whole idea of Me Too or canceling people for certain misdeeds. They'll take it seriously against some people and they won't take it seriously against others, you know? Mm. And I kind of wonder if that's part of the whole aspect of cancel culture that just kind of like seems to be a wild bull that just goes all over the place, but it's not really anchored in logical thinking or sound thinking, you know, that applies evenly to everyone. That's a good point. You mentioned the Bolshevik Revolution and China's communist ways as well. Then it must be then that cancel culture is a weapon or a tool used by whatever group it is for expediency and achieving their goals. Why else would it be okay to cancel Harvey Weinstein, but not Joe Biden? Why else would it be okay to cancel this person and not that person? Well, there must be some sort of expediency for what political reasons or reasons to advance their cause, whatever. Like, for example, one of the founders of Black Lives Matter was in the hot seat for purchasing all of these different properties, millions of dollars worth of property, while promoting Marxist ideology. And it barely made a blip on leftist publications. But someone else that, say, on the left could do the same thing, and it's just like this big deal. Well, you can hardly have the founder of Black Lives Matter being the subject of cancel culture. It would undermine their whole effort. Whereas this person over here is a throwaway, a token person. They don't care about that person. They could go ahead and cancel that person. You know, actually, I can think of perhaps slightly more extreme, more polar example. Mm -hmm. You're talking about one of the founders of BLM who used some of the BLM money to purchase nice properties. Allegedly. And, allegedly. <laughs> and nobody really spoke much about that. But you had the same thing just a few months ago with What's his name? Steve Bannon, who was alleged to have taken money that was used to build the wall. This is privately raised funds, not public. And allegedly, at least according to his accusers, he used some of that money to enrich himself. Or I think they may have accused him of obtaining properties with that money, too, or something like that. Mm. I don't remember the detail. Yeah. And the FBI or some investigative body even served a search warrant on him to gather materials to bring charges against him. I want to say, ultimately, they were starting to find that the allegations against him were not so solid. I don't remember all the details, but there were many holes in the theory about Steve Bannon taking that money for uses other than what he had promised. But I don't think that ever made it to court. I want to say that Steve Bannon was actually pardoned. And so as a preemptive, I guess, pardoning, just in case Trump didn't get into office again and the judicial system went crazy or whatever, Bannon wouldn't have to worry about that. So anyway, that was just interesting because there was a lot of airtime about Bannon, at least on political radio, about that, right. but hardly about the BLM founder. Excellent so. point. You're listening to the Removing Barriers podcast. We are sitting down with Sam talking about cancel culture and free speech. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about what it is such a thing as hate speech and can speech be violent? We'll be right back. Do you have the desire to earnestly contend for the faith which was once delivered unto the saints? Answers in Genesis can help. 
They provide biblically sound books, CDs, DVDs, homeschooling materials, VBS materials, online courses, digital downloads, and The Answers Magazine, and more. Plus, tickets to the Creation Museum and Ark Encounter. Go to The Answers Bookstore by clicking the link in the description section below so you too can be ready to give an answer to anyone who asks the reason of the hope that is in you. We have talked about the definition of cancel culture, what cancel culture entails, and all of its nuances, and it inevitably deals with speech as well. Is there such a thing as hate speech? Wow. So, you know, from a legal perspective, I would argue that there should be no such thing as hate speech. But from a lay perspective, I would say, yeah, there certainly can be hate speech. What is it? It would be whenever you speak anything hateful or spiteful towards another individual or groups of people, you know, or I guess even a thing, perhaps. Honestly, I think hate speech is just abusive speech, you know. That's what the definition should be. So if you cuss at the dog, right, that's kind of hateful. <laughs> and you're speaking at the dog in a hateful tone, so that's hate speech. But, you know, more commonly, I guess you see, uh, wow, was it 20-something years ago in Canada? They adopted laws to ban hate speech. Mm -hmm. So if you spoke anything that seemed to promote hatred of any protected people group, which I don't like that, by the way, this whole idea of a protected people group. So does that mean that some people are more important to protect than others? You know. But anyway, in Canada, I know their hate speech laws affected the church a lot because they couldn't speak out against immorality. And one of the big areas that they focused on was if ever a pastor said anything against homosexuality, it was hate speech, you know? And I think that's dangerous. It's dangerous everywhere. But when you look at American law, where we have the freedom, the freedom of speech, you know, and freedom of the press, we should be free to say things legally. We should be free to say things, even if it is hateful. But I think it's dangerous because in America, you know, 30 years ago, Legal theory was pretty much the idea was you can't read a person's mind and you can't punish a person for what they're thinking. You can only punish a person for what they do. Right. And I think that when we make hate speech a crime, we are trying to then make illegal certain ways of thinking. Oh, he said something about black people or he said something about white people. And we think he meant that as a way of hating on black people or hating on white people. So now we can punish him for hate speech because there was hate in his heart when he said whatever he said, you know, or even with my coworkers, they know that I'm a Christian and that I am 100 percent opposed to homosexual behavior. Right. And that kind of a death style. But I think one time when we were walking out somewhere, somebody was talking about how somebody or something was pro-gay and then they looked at me and they're like oh i'm sorry i forgot sam hated gay people you know and i said whoa that is not true you know they're trying to take what i say and ascribe feelings of hatred to it and it's not true i don't hate gay people i love gay people i hate the sin you know just like god god hates the sin he loves the people why do i hate homosexuality 
I hate it because it hurts the people that practice it, as well as the whole country that's involved, you know, or the whole society that's involved. To me, it's like smoking. If I speak, oh, you shouldn't be smoking, right? That doesn't mean I hate the smoker. My grandpa smoked. I didn't hate him. I just didn't want him to smoke because it's killing him, you know? So mm -hmm. it's really for, you know, many of us Christians, when we speak out against homosexuality, it should be, in my opinion, in a spirit of love, not hate. But hate speech laws don't seem to recognize that. I wonder if when we discuss the question on whether or not there's such a thing as hate speech, should we make the line of demarcation at the point of intent? So let's say, for example, you have someone that says, I hate gays. They are a wretched group of people and I don't ever want to be around them. Well, that's really mean speech, but I wouldn't label that as hate speech. But if you say, I hate gays, and if I see one, I'm going to shoot him in the face, I'm going to kill him. Well, that demonstrates intent. It demonstrates the willingness to physically do some kind of harm or evil to a particular person. If you have the opportunity, and perhaps that can be labeled as hate speech, I wonder if that's where the line of demarcation is. You gave the example of your friend MCG who works for the Secret Service, and because the person merely said they wanted to assassinate the president, they took that as something that they would take action on. They took that very seriously. Well, if you're talking about killing someone, that's a very hateful thing, and it's demonstrating a willingness in your heart to actually do physical harm to someone, should that be considered hate speech? As opposed to, hey, I don't like that person, her hair is red, nah, redheads are stupid kind of thing. You see what I'm saying? Well, of course, we know the Bible said that our conversation to be always be with grace and seasoned with salt. I think I'm butchering the verse, but you get mm -hmm. the idea. Mm -hmm. Always with grace and seasoned with salt, at least something along that line. The problem I have with the term hate speech Go back to what I was saying earlier. Who determined that the speech is hateful? It comes back down to some sort of moral standard that, hey, saying this means this is hateful. And I'm not quite sure that, you know, whose standard or whose moral standard are we going to eventually agree to? I don't even think I can define hate speech. But as the old saying goes, I probably can tell it when I hear it, but to ask me to define it might be a little bit difficult because let's take the gospel, for instance. The gospel, at least, well, you know, the gospel is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ according to the scripture. But while you're presenting the gospel to people, uh, to most folks, you normally would have to tell them that they're a sinner. At least they have to come to the realization of their sin, that they're a sinner. That if they die without a savior, which is Jesus Christ, they will spend eternity in a place called hell. You're going to have to tell them that they're not good enough in and of themselves. You tell these people things like that, they take it as being hateful, unloving. The gospel and the things that we tell people in the gospel that, hey, you're not good enough. You need to repent. You need to do this. You need to do that. Again, you're not saved by works. But when the Spirit convict them, if we're going to convict them of sin and judgment to come, that's hateful to some people. So where do we draw the line on hate speech? I, I agree with what Sam is saying. I agree with what you are saying. But it comes down to, again, there's a certain set of morality that 
we're in this political divide, we're in this division, and because we're in it, which side are we going to take? Again, for Christians, we can say we're going to take it from Scripture. So we know that we can love the sinner and hate the sin. But in today's society, they're telling you that if you don't love the sin as well, that is hateful. And that's the problem. And that's the problem with hate speech because who is determined when something is hate? And by what standard do you determine the hate? Of course, we can all agree that if I say I'm cursing someone and say I'm going to shoot them and I'm going to do this, we can all agree that that's hateful. But what about if I say that I don't agree with someone being transgender? I believe that is against what God has created them to be. One side of the political aisle might say that's hateful and another side might say, hey, that's fine. So again, where do we draw the line? Whose morality are we going to accept? We know as Christians, again, we accept the morality of scripture, but that's just the problem I have with it because at the end of the day, someone is going to have to determine if something hates speech. And that's why it goes back to cancel culture because then the people that determine that hate speech, they're going to say, oh, well, we're going to have to cancel this person or cancel that person. And again, I just believe that we can be civil and be kind with each other. You know, we don't have to volunteer information that we don't have to give. There are nicer ways to tell someone you don't agree with their standard or their way of living. And they're a crude way to say it. And you can choose which one you want to say. Having the conversation, you know, in grace, basically, as the scripture says. Can hate speech be violence then? Because if we're talking about what the standard is, well, we know in the world today they have this thing called microaggressions. And so you might say something or misgender someone or whatever, and they will call that microaggressions, which is a form of hate speech, or they might even say an act of violence against them. So the question now becomes, can speech be considered violence? If you were to ask me, I would say, based on the definition I gave before, it would be violence if it's calling for bodily harm against someone else. If I say I'm going to run you through with a sword or I'm going to shoot you or something like that demonstrates intent, yes, that would be a form of violence. But I also realize how much of a slippery slope that could really be. I think there have to be some sort of ability and immediacy or eminence to that. For instance, if I'm holding a gun in my hand and it's loaded and I say, I hate you, I'm going to shoot you. Well, well, that gun makes it have more weight. Right. That's what you're saying. Gotcha. But if a five-year-old with a water gun walk up to me and say, I'm hate you, I'm going to shoot you. I see. You know, the five-year-old doesn't have the ability, nor, nor the it, means. Nor the means, nor is it immediately a threat to my life. Mm-hmm. So you have to determine, hey, when does speech become violent? I think it has to be that you have the ability to do it and you can do it immediately if you can. That's where I would say, but when I think about it, though, I think about Proverbs 18 and verse 21, where the Bible say, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Think of Proverbs 21, verse 23, whosoever keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. It seems here like the Bible is telling me that there's a lot of things that we need to consider when it comes to the tongue. The tongue is one of those little instruments that you can do a lot of harm with. So it's about with the death and life and the power of the tongue. There's a lot of stuff there that you have to consider. And even James, 
I only have chapter 3, verse 1 to 6 here. But if you read the whole of chapter 3, where you talk about tongues, he said, My brethren, be not many masters, knowing that he shall receive a greater condemnation. For in many things we offend all. If any man offend not in word, the same is a perfect man and able to bridle the whole body. Behold, we put bits in the horse's mouth that they may obey us, and we turn about their whole body. Behold, also the ships, which though they be so great and are driven by fierce wind, yet are they turned about with a very small hem. Whatsoever the governor listed, even so the tongue is a little member and boasted great things. Behold, how great a matter a little fire kindleth. And the tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So is the tongue among our members, that it defileth the whole body, and set on fire the course of nature, and is set on fire of hell. Can speech be violence? I think that, hey, the imminency of the beef it, but we have to agree that churches have split because there were no gunshots fired, there were no nice pull, but churches have split because people open their mouth and they speak and say certain things in anger or without their conversation being seasoned with grace and that happened so the bible have a lot of warning against the tongue and so i'm not quite sure i was going far as to say as the political left puts it because i think the political left puts it in a way that it's still forced submission on you because they say this is violence it's just a simple disagreement i could say i don't agree with this or i don't believe they have more than two genders and that's hate speech mm -hmm. and that's your inciting violence against me that's where it might become wrong and stuff like that but we have to be careful with the tongue because i think the bible definitely warn us against the tongue but i think the left use it a little bit differently to say that even the simplest of things that you may disagree on the simple act of disagreeing and verbalizing the fact that you disagree they consider that hate speech which I don't think it's what the Bible is talking about here. But I think kinds of culture see to accomplish submission. So when I think about submission, I think about what the Bible says in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5 to 11, this Bible says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, taught it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, and took upon him the form of a servant. I was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore God also had highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth, and things on the earth, and that every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. My friends, one day, Listener, one day you will have to bow to Jesus and confess him as Lord. You can do that now and he'll be your savior or you can do it then and he'll be your judge. Which one do you want Christ to be for you? Your savior or your judge? If you face him as a judge, the Bible declares that you are already condemned. I think about John chapter 3 and verse 18. Where the Bible says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, 
because he had not believed on the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is a condemnation, that light is come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because their deeds are evil. My friends, if you're not saved, dear listener, if you're not saved, the Bible said that you are condemned already. Christ will one day be your judge. But it doesn't have to be that way. He could be your savior. We look at John 3, 18, but what about John 3, 16 and 17? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world but that the world through him might be saved. What I'm saying here is that one day when you face God, you can bow your knee to him now and confess that you're a sinner and confess that he is Lord and Savior of your life, repenting of your sin and turning to Christ, or one day he'll be your judge. The Bible said in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 and 10, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. So you have a choice before you. You can either choose your sin and face Christ as your judge, or you can choose Jesus Christ and face him as your savior. Which one would you choose? Would you trust him today? Sam, thank you for joining us on the Removing Barriers podcast. MCG, Jay, it's been a pleasure. Great. Join us for episode 44 as we continue our discussion on cancel culture and free speech. Thank you for listening. To get a hold of us or to support this podcast, go to anchor.fm forward slash removing barriers. This has been the Removing Barriers podcast. We attempted to remove barriers so that we all can have a clear view of the cross.